Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. For any new listeners who don't know what to expect, in each episode, I interview an expert on an emerging area of public relations. I get to the facts, but I leave out the jargon. It's a podcast about marketing, but it's in plain language. No, really, it is. (laughs) Welcome back to all of my regular listeners too. If any of you have any comments or questions, just tweet me at Stella Bales. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and on iTunes, whatever you listen on at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. Now, would you say that you're confident in data? Would you say that your team is confident in data? What does that even mean? Data is talked about a lot in the PR industry. Sometimes that can build a fear of incompetency. Are we doing enough? Should we be using different tech? Am I analytical? Are all common fears. Last year, I contributed to a paper on data literacy in public relations. And I worked with PR agency one MD, James Crawford, on two chapters. And first one, we looked at how you can use tech better to build uh, data culture in your team. And in the second one, we really went into the depths of that and brought in some case studies of different data teams on different PR teams and how they improve data use. Today's episode, we really lift the lids on data literacy in one of the most well-known and successful agencies, H&K Strategies. James joins me and we interview H&K's Global Head of Data and Analytics, Anderson Spray. Not only is Alison's career path to this role so inspiring, her approach in recruitment and building her now award-winning data team is really fascinating. Last year, HK Strategies won the most amount of awards they've ever won in a year. (laughs) And you can't win those awards or prove PR success without a clear data story. So how do they do it? Um, how has Alison built that confidence in data throughout H&K? Her role is global, so it is throughout the H&K teams. How has she recruited a team of data specialists and made them work with the PR practitioners throughout the teams? How do they work with clients to gain the data that they need up front? Always a challenge. Alison really does share her recruitment and organization secrets. And she also shares how working and taking a sector specialist approach has worked for them um, in a really positive way too. Alison also shares tips on how to get started, no matter whether you're managing a small PR team or starting the journey of building a data team within an agency just like she did. In this episode, there's practical tips. There's also some lessons on where ego, honesty and curiosity play a big part and some actions that we can all take to help move the industry forward here. Here's James and Alison. Thank you both for joining me, James and Alison. It's very exciting to have two guests on the podcast. And James, you're going to be joining me on another similar podcast to this coming soon. I'm just following you around, I think. (laughs) Yes, yes, it does start to feel like that. (laughs) So James and I co-authored two chapters on a recent PRCA paper which was exploring data literacy in public relations. And we're going to share a little bit more about that, but we really wanted to have a little bit more of a chat with Alison, who was one of our case studies in the chapter, because once we saw some of the insights into your team and how you've organized the team at H&K, it just seemed so interesting. I know there's a lot 
that the listeners of the podcast could learn from you and how you set up the team. But before we sort of get into the details of that, James, can you share with the listeners a little bit about how we put together our chapter, especially on encouraging sort of a data culture in PR? Absolutely. I think the reason why we put this chapter together was that one of the biggest barriers to having a culture of data literacy is the, is the blockers people put in front of themselves. People think it's not possible to do. People in PR think that data is this thing that somebody else does. And also, I think people think there's like some one-size-fits-all approach. And what we wanted to do here was lift the lid on it a bit. And we chose Alison because she is probably at the pinnacle of her career, I would say, <laughs> leading a, one of the biggest PR agencies in the world, that were their measurement team, I should say. Underneath her, she's got a team of specialists in data, data analysts. And for me, it was, it's a really good best-in-class example of, of how it can be done. Likewise, throughout the section, we also looked at a number of other options because there's more than one. So we wanted to show, help people understand the importance of culture in developing and driving adoption. We wanted to show the practical approaches to driving adoption. And yeah, the three case studies did that. I think since we wrote that paper last year, some last part of last year, (laughs) I'm getting confused with the months. I've actually really taken much more of an interest in just the confidence levels in data because we were exploring how to encourage team culture, culture in data and getting into the nuts and bolts of how you can use tools better to encourage data insights around the teams. But I think there's just a, a difference in confidence and really it'd be amazing if we can improve that. But Alison, what's your take on that? What do you think the level of confidence is in public relations, especially in comparison to other areas of marketing? Yeah, and thank you for having me. It's it's really lovely to be here. I think PR has resisted numeracy (laughs) in a number of ways. And I think more broadly, when we look at kind of the march of digitalization, that's a good flexibility of what we're trying to see here in terms of the use of data. There's a lot of hesitancy when the first rounds of kind of the push into digital and e-com and search came around. I think you see a lot of agencies who really wholeheartedly embraced that, but it probably took them another five or 10 years versus their marketing colleagues. I think data is very similar, where we're seeing some folks really pushing the agenda, but broadly, it's not something that's necessarily even being taught within schools, colleges, universities, when you start to look at the PR discipline. So as that starts to change, I think we're seeing more people come in who are more comfortable working with numbers and with data more broadly. But at the moment, it's on the lower end compared to our marketing colleagues. That being said, I have seen people do terrible things in Excel in media buying agencies and in PR companies. So it's not like we're (laughs) leagues apart. Yeah. It's interesting that I think the, the more that we do share examples from other areas of marketing can really help with not just staying in the NPR, whether it's at conferences or through papers, I think that all helps with the confidence levels, doesn't it? Addison, we really want to get into the detail of your team and how you've set it up. And it's probably quite obvious to people, to the listeners, and especially people who have seen the paper, that you do have a specialist team of some data people and people with data backgrounds, rather than just training PR practitioners within H&K. 
But before we get into the detail of the team, can you share a little bit about your career path and how you got to your position at H&K? I think it's useful background because it does explain why I'm so passionate about everyone feeling empowered to actually work with data. It's not a space I thought I'd find myself in. You know, I went to university to be a journalist. I've always really liked telling stories and getting kind of under the skin of problems. Graduated in the midst of the recession in the US and moved into kind of corporate comms at a large pharmaceutical company and kind of bounced from there into social and then quickly into social listening. And that's where my journey into data really started because I realized there are just swaths of conversations of people being super open like when I was still in the healthcare space about the challenges that they're facing. And there's so much information that we can share with clients around how you can actually help people who are often in quite vulnerable states. I was working on a lot of oncology products at the time. And for me, that was really, really eye-opening and a kind of good joining up point between everything that I had studied around journalism and being able to tell stories and knitting that together with kind of increased fluency in data and making that something that kind of PR and comms managers could do something with. From there, I just chose to throw myself into it. <laughs> kind of went fully into a data role at the agency I was at at the time. Um, moved across, did media buying for a bit. Really useful to get your arms around big data and to see how some of the data tech works. But in truth, my, my passion lies in PR. I love the challenge <laughs> that exists in, in earned first comms. So your background, it's quite an interesting one. Your background came from like a PR and comms route. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's it like managing really smart mathematicians and polymaths and geniuses? There must be some challenges. I know a lot of people are scared to do that. Yeah, it is. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I got early in my career is don't be afraid to admit that you don't know something. I've gotten to where I am, I think, partially because I know what I am good at. And a lot of that is acting as a translator and a data storyteller and helping make sense of what can sometimes be quite complex processes or information to more senior stakeholders. Whereas I know I'm not going to be running Bayesian statistics. That's not in my wheelhouse. I know enough to know what it is and where you might use it and to know that in those instances, it's best to bring in a specialist. So having that mutual respect for what other people do and being willing to check your ego at the door. I love that. Being confident in what you don't know will actually build confidence in data. I would totally agree with my own journey, actually, by being able to feel comfortable around the people that you work with to say, actually, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do a pivot table. Can you show me as if I'm back at school, please? (laughs) You know, just being able to say that a few years ago and have somebody show you just really, really works well. I've got a question for both of you because, James, obviously you're an MD, an agency. You're both agency. What is the split between, I guess, Addison, this is going to be just for your team. What's the split of PR people that are trained to be better in data in comparison to people who are trained in data to work in PR? What's the rough split that you have at H&K? For me, I mean, if I look at my team, we've got 15, one of them purely came up through a PR background. So very similar to me. The rest are all people who trained in data, you know, came up through other kind of ancillary companies, things like Cision, for example, and have moved across into agency land. 
What I would say more interestingly is we're seeing a lot more people with research backgrounds coming across and having interest in agencies, more academia. I think that's a real growth opportunity for us, certainly, that we're looking at over the next couple of years. Interesting. Come back to that one. James, what's it like at your agency? Well, I was going to put forward my company as a case study, but I thought I don't want the report to be <laughs> the James Crawford show. So I chose case studies I chose. But yeah, so we've got a slightly different approach because we're a smaller agency compared to H&K. So we've got a set of processes around with our, our reporting products are called one of our, I've got four of them. One of them is handled by account handlers. It's a quarterly reporting process. And that involves people being trained to use and process data from and visualize it from within Google Analytics and Looker Studio. And that's you know, every single account handler is trained on that. Some hate it, some love it. And some know more than I do now because they've been doing it for that long and I'm a bit away from the cold face. To supplement that, we've got two experts. I'm not counting myself in that. We've got one guy who is an astrophysicist. So he can plot where planets are in the sky. So I think he can handle a pivot table or two. (laughs) And then we also have someone who's just a specialist in Google Analytics and Looker Studio. When things break, we turn to her or if we've got a question, she helps us fix it. And hopefully the process kind of runs on rails. We've created a process that people can do and it kind of works. There are mm. pros and cons. Specialists where there's needs. Again, another one I'm going to come back to. Alison, back over to you. Could you give us an insight into your team and then how they work with the sector teams around H&K, not just in London, but globally as well. I can imagine it was like a spider diagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is a diagram and anyone who's met with H&K knows that we do love diagram. <laughs> we have, it's what we call our depth and breadth model. So H&K has a series of sectors that cover basically every industry that you can think of. And within each of those sectors sits, you know, brilliant people from media relations, account management, et cetera who really understand that sector. For example, if we look at our financial and professional services sector, there's people who've worked, to borrow James's term, at a coalface with kind of financial services firms for years and really understand the ins and outs of those businesses and how you need to communicate around them. Um, What we've done from an analytics perspective is try to pair those with data folk. So we're actually putting analysts into the sector teams such that they're working hand in hand with those account managers, upskilling them as they go, and also learning an awful lot about the inner workings of PR. Because I think it's one of the greatest challenges for people when they come into an agency from a data role, particularly if you've only been doing data in the past, is that you have to actually understand how PR works. And that can be really opaque to a lot of services providers, for example. So that's how the team is broadly structured. We then have, obviously, more central resources, particularly those who perhaps are a bit more senior and tend to float around, and specialist roles. For example, our behavioral science team sits centrally just because it doesn't quite work the same way to try to embed them in. And then we tie into our broader creative teams as well. How does it work internationally? Because you're based in London. Is there another one of you in the States somewhere? There are a series of of me's. (laughs) Yeah, so the London team, I think, is is the largest by size, but we have data teams across pretty much every bit of the world, the largest ones being Canada, the US, Dubai. At the moment, we do have folks then dotted across other markets. So it tends to operate in sort of a hub and spoke model where you might have sort of centers of excellence, if you will, 
and then individual analysts servicing other markets. It's something that we're continually looking at how we upskill. And I think I wrote a bit in the POCA paper about how our focus has been on providing people with the tools to do the basics well. So we spent a lot of time going through a series of evaluation processes to figure out what's the social listening vendor that's going to give us the right coverage for an organization of our size and scale. What are we going to do around influencer marketing and how do we make sure that we've got a tool that's going to work and that provide both that balance of really good quality data, but also user friendliness such that we're not expecting necessarily everyone who's picking up a data tool to continue the metaphor, understand how to use a pivot table. Sometimes it is about using the interface and being able to get the insights out of that. How much does the workflow and tools and processes that you set and then train the teams on flex with once it reaches the team? Is it quite structured and this is exactly how things should work or is it a framework that they then adjust? So I think we're maybe a little bit different versus what James was describing in that we have a series of products. You know, if you have a look at our website, you can see them, things like Space Plus, it's all around helping brands find their white space. As an example, those are pretty set because there's a methodology that fits behind them. There's an algorithm that we use. In those instances, you have to be a little bit rigid because that's where the rigor is coming in. But a lot of the work that we do in having data specialists embedded in the teams is consultancy. So actually getting in with a client, having a conversation about what their problem is and working backwards to a solution. And so in that way, I think there's maybe less of a set way of doing things versus kind of consistency more in kind of the methodologies that underpin it, I guess is how I'd answer that. <laughs> Do you recruit the data specialists that are set within teams as well? Yes. Or, yes. And can you tell us a little bit about that sort of recruitment process? Earlier on, you mentioned that you are seeing more sort of research backgrounds, specialists coming in and not just data. What do you look for? <laughs> so I think it is an interesting set of skills that you need to work in a PR agency that is slightly different to if you were going to work um, just in-house doing data work. And I'll come on to the challenge that we're looking at when we think about bringing in data scientists versus kind of business analysts. You do need to be willing to have conversations about complex systems and processes and data in a way that's going to be understandable to colleagues who maybe are not as familiar with those tools. You need to be kind of willing to take that step back and again, it is a lot of it for me is always going to be about checking your ego at the door. It is that willingness to engage with people at the level that they're at and then upskill them as you go. So you need people who are willing to be that little bit flexible, maybe not the kind of traditional picture. I think some people have of analysts of kind of sitting up in their tower and being unwilling to engage with everybody else. From an academic perspective, you know, yeah, I think we are seeing a lot more interest partially because we have this behavioral science offer. And so that kind of puts us into places that maybe we wouldn't be otherwise. But also because, you know, we do have people across so many different sectors. For example, we've recently hired someone into our healthcare team who was doing some really phenomenal work up in Scotland, looking at how you might change or encourage people to take different contraceptive options. That was what she, you know, was working in public health. Those are the kind of people where it's such an interesting background. And it's a different challenge that we have in an agency sometimes. Sometimes we have campaigns like that. I love having that mix of skills as well, rather than just people who kind of all do the same thing. 
sometimes it's about leaping when you see somebody like that, <laughs> hoping that you can find a space. How did you find her? <laughs> a referral. That's not a normal ad. <laughs> no, we didn't put out an ad saying we really would like <laughs> no. no, we were fortunate. She was referred on by a former H&K. H&K is a, is a really good network of people who both come back and refer other folks to the agency. And the other thing I will say is I've had a lot of people apply or cold reach out of late because we do quite a lot of things like this, going on podcasts, going to AMIC events, other speaking opportunities, you know, just going out and talking about the fact that we do data work, I think then makes people aware of you. It means you're more likely to attract the right kinds of candidates. So if you are looking at building out a data team, I think being a little bit more open about what you're doing is really useful. This podcast is brought to you by CoverageBook, the tool that creates beautifully designed reports with credible metrics you can be proud of. Head to coveragebook.com for your free trial. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Best data colleague that I worked with ended up being a friend of a friend who had just left university doing statistics but I'd met him at a party and knew that he was really, really good at socialising and talking to anybody. He was a real social chameleon and he was studying statistics. I was like, this could work in a PR agency. <laughs> and he turned out to be an absolutely fantastic consultant in the end. But he didn't know that was going to be his route when he left uni. I just brought him in. But yeah, it's really good advice for people who are just starting to think about hiring for these roles, definitely. Once you do find those specialists, so like the healthcare specialist that you mentioned, what is the sort of best mix of them working with their sort of sector team, but then also with the client and especially sort of focusing on how much they work with the client? I know it's always a challenge for people to, in PR, to say we just don't get enough access to data from the client. Does it help having somebody who's a specialist in the sector working with the client or not? Two things I'd say. One is, for me, there's a really important sort of church and state relationship. I'm giving away my Americanness here in that the analysts have their homes within the sectors, but we all come and speak together as a central team as well. So state, church. I think that's really useful because it gives people the opportunity both to really integrate into the sector and the practice that they're working in, but continue to have other specialists to bounce ideas off of, to commiserate with, <laughs> just to do whatever you need to do, but to have those people who are like-minded and facing similar challenges is really useful. From a client perspective, I do think having someone who speaks the same language around data is really useful to unlocking some of those shared resources. You know, I continue to say, I think a lot of the time in PR, we're just afraid to ask. If you don't ask, you're not going to get it. Whereas our marketing colleagues are much more forthright about asking for research, about seeing even things like reputational studies, the number of times found we just haven't asked whether we could have access to that kind of data. But I still think there is a hurdle for PR to get across when it comes to the big first-party data that our clients collect. That's still not something I see a lot of sharing around. And I think, in truth, until we start to get to a point where we have bigger systems in place to be able to take it securely and hold it, that there's probably still going to be a barrier there versus, for example, our media buying colleagues who have those bigger systems already established. I think that's a good understanding, knowing that it's not that they're just withholding to be difficult <laughs> or protective. It's because no. it's needed. That James, how do you find your clients and yeah. access to different data points? 
I was going to make a point just about bringing data experts into the client conversation because it can be a double-edged sword for one. You've got some really smart people who can deliver some great insights, but some of the people that we work with and still do work with can be, you know, neurodiverse, stubborn, uh, maybe their communication skills aren't particularly concise. So, you know, some clients will happily speak to the source of a report and be able to interrogate them and get what they want out of it. But sometimes it's just not the right answer. So, you know, that was the first point, just about a people point, really. On the point about accessing client data, yeah, that is the big challenge um, you know, from a GDPR point of view, trying to get access to first-party data and things. And we try to get around that as much as we can. Sometimes we can use tools that have all the kind of the data policies that cover you for that. But a lot of the time, clients, their legal departments will just won't share that kind of information because somebody somewhere has decided they can't do and it's too difficult to reinvent that policy. So, yeah, that's going to be a challenge. I've not really noticed advertising people having better access to it, maybe because I don't work that closely with advertisers. Yeah, I think surely as we go forward with the amount of big data tools that are popping up all over the place, there'll be ways to handle that data. Yeah, I agree. It's been interesting for me. I've always been, you know, up until the last seven years, agency side, and now being immersed in our own sort of data set at Coverage Book, it's been quite interesting. Most of the work we've been doing is just within our own team, but we are starting to work with agencies now. And it's been quite amusing that I'm saying the same sentences that used to really <laughs> annoy me in the agency. So I said, why can't, what, well, yeah, we best not just, get, let's keep that data here. We, they don't need to waste their time, you know, looking, trawling through that data. I'm like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. But you're right. There are some tools that we're looking at one called Databox the other day, which is almost like an in-between. So it wouldn't be necessary for an agency to look at all of our customer and revenue data. But Databox, it was a way that could just pull in some of the data that they needed to be able to report and have the right kind of insight. And we could just manage that as like an in-between. And that was something that wasn't around a few years ago when I was agency side. So hopefully things like that can really help. But it's, yeah, just having those conversations and working with them, which would be a good way to develop it. With the PR people, practitioners within the teams working with the data people that you've helped to hire, does the data person that's within the team have any kind of responsibility in lifting data culture or data confidence within the team, or are they just set on the work in hand and the client work? It is literally written into the job description. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> the upskilling is part of the role. I think it's really important that we consider how we do that. You know, I wrote, again, I think a little bit in the, the POCO piece about different I don't want to say hacks because they're sort of behavioral nudges, but different techniques that you can use to bring things along. And I think those are the soft skills that we try to reiterate kind of through those folks who sit in the sectors. So thinking about how you can always keep it simple. To James's point, it's really easy to get into the weeds and get really excited about something. All of us do it. If you've ever spoken to a data person, you will see them do it. But for all of us, we default to simplicity. So it's much better if you can figure out how to keep it as simple as possible. And if you're trying to get people not to do something, for example, if we're trying to get people to move away from AVEs, even doing something as simple as not defaulting to that, not engaging around that, giving people something else in a packaged way is going to be more 
effective than just saying no. Obviously, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about how you can prove uh, that this is the norm. So we know that people copy the behavior of everyone else around them. So the more kind of peer-to-peer engagement we can have and showcasing case studies and examples of where this has worked really well and finding those champions in the team even beyond the immediate data ref has been really important. And then just, you know, showing momentum. It's really hard to start a data journey. It is. Like I came into H&K. It was the second role that I'd taken where I joined and there was no other data person there. And thinking about how you build a team, it's hard. It's a daunting thing, but it's about kind of understanding, well, you're there. There were a handful of actual other kind of junior people. Okay, so we've got momentum. We're already 10%. If you're already 10%, then you know that you can get the next 10. And kind of thinking of it that way rather than just looking up the hill and going, I think that's really important. Yeah, just having a small start. Are there any regular ways to help the team be just more confident in looking for little insights rather than just relying on the data person? Are there any mm-hmm. weekly catch-ups or actions that the data person within Teams tries to set amongst the team? That I'm just thinking of ways that a team who might be listening to this who wants to get started could make some small steps in their first step of data journey. Yeah, I mean, I think we've done some things kind of in place across the agency, like Excel trainings, basic monitoring training, things that enable people to do kind of the light touch data work without fear and also without any judgment. So kind of, yeah, opening it up and saying, we know you don't know how to use a pivot table. Let me show you. Let me show you a better way of doing that. Because actually, when we think about data, you think about social listening, you think about surveys, you think about that kind of stuff. But actually, you know, media lists are data, your contact lists are data, your project plan, that's all data because it's all structured. Or it should be. (laughs) And if you can think about it in that way, actually, it's going to make your whole job better. I think actually that's been maybe the biggest mindset shift is enabling people to say, oh, no, I could do that. And Mm -hmm. that's actually a lot faster to try it that way. It's a great way of building confidence from the off, isn't it? And especially if it's their contacts, their influencer lists and looking at the influence metrics that they can look after and be their own, it can really, really help. James, what about you with your team? How do you feel that the data culture stands at the moment and has progressed over time? Well, because we're getting all account handlers do some element of it, what you can find, one of the big challenges is things become formulaic. They used this graph in the last time we did the report and they're going to do the same thing again. And they don't think about what the story is they're trying to say. So it's been a good quarter, been a bad quarter. We're going to try and demonstrate why. What are the broader reasons why brand is down? Did they just stop spending on Facebook? You might want to annotate that alongside what's happening. So it's thinking about the story and leaving that trail of breadcrumbs to some sort of outcome. Yeah, that's key. And then it's just basic things around people forget about year on year reporting versus last quarter. People make keep going back to the same mistakes. For us, it's about putting in place some checks and balances to make sure that people spot the basic errors and we get something meaningful out the other end of it. We try to use as many sorts of tools as possible so there's less wading through Excel for people. I guess as well with the tools, if you're not lucky enough to have a data person, turn to the tools that you're paying for and using and ask 
them to do calls and ask questions. I know that we covered that point in one of our chapters, me being a vendor, <laughs> challenge them to explain more about the data points that are there. Where did they come from? What do they mean? Why are they important? Because that can help train up the team as well. Alison, you mentioned sharing best use case studies around the agency. And I actually remember starting my career at H&K and going to the big all agency catch-ups and being really inspired by some of the case studies that would be shown by other departments. Is that something that still goes on? And do you get into the detail of how you measured a successful campaign that might have won an award, which... You have won lots of awards. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. In fact, 2022 was our most awarded year ever. It was a really great year. And we spent a lot of time talking about the work internally, more than we do externally. We're relatively quiet on that front. I think there's still work for us to do, if I'm being really honest, around sharing the why was this successful and digging into how did we evaluate it? What does that look like? I don't know that we always go into that level of detail with our colleagues. We probably should do it more. That being said, we do celebrate good work and we take time to celebrate the people who are behind it, which I think is really valuable from an agency culture point of view. We have what are called the H&K Excellence Awards at the end of the year, which is a big party, which you might expect. And this year it was directly before the AMEC Awards, <laughs> which was interesting. But one of the biggest awards for innovation went to a data product, which is a huge shift for us. I don't think that's ever happened before. It's always been an innovative campaign. This year it went to our smart media list product, which looks at basically innovating the way that you create media lists and, and starting with data to do it. That so was developed by your yeah. team or? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So you developed well, by our team, but really in partnership again with the account leads, because it's about that understanding of how people actually reach out to journalists and what's going to be useful and then working backwards again to what are the variables that are going to be important in making a more informed selection and how could we get the data and that's where it gets more complex but I think that the smart media list tool is a really interesting example both of the value of having those people in teams in meetings with clients and sitting next to the folks who are leading accounts day to day and then the willingness of the organization to say actually yeah this year we're going to value that this is a thing that we're placing value on and, and talking about it externally. And it's really interesting, you know, this January, we've seen more interest in that product than we've seen in anything else. And so I do think how you celebrate those successes and how you talk about data matters internally. Not just internally within an agency, but I think in the industry, it's a shame that we don't see more. Oh, I know that we do get to hear success stories top of line, but we don't get to lift up the cover and really see how was that measurement process put in place? What were the tools? What were the metrics? Why? <laughs> There's a great example that we had a couple of years ago from James Diageo, who then yeah. won lots yeah, of awards really at Amec. But he was just so open. He was able to be open about exactly what he did do. But I know that even lots of people who use estimated coverage views at coverage books still get in touch and ask us, and what did he do with that metric? What was the calculation after that? How did he get to the value? But it's helped so many people. Why do you think we don't see more examples of the sort of the true measurement process? I think a lot of it comes down to confidentiality. Clients are very sensitive about how their data is used and where it's shared because they know that their competitors are looking at it. And because sometimes there's a need for that confidentiality. I think the other piece is just there's sometimes a false assumption that there's not interest there, but we know that there is because you have a case study like 
the Diageo example. Similarly, I think you could look at lots of the different keynote speakers that have sat across AMEC or the PR measurement conference the past couple of years. And there's always just huge threads, for example, on Twitter afterwards. I'm like, oh man, I didn't realize you could do it that way. Yeah, to quote Richard Bagnall, I think he probably stole this quote from somebody else. <laughs> A rising tide lifts all ships. You definitely stole it from someone else. But it's true. And I think, you know, the more we can share best practice, we try to be as open as we can because we think, you know, we believe in thought leadership and, you know, it helps market our business. I do think the PR industry is a bit more competitive and closed. It's traditionally been a bit more adversarial, I think, than, say, the SEO industry, who the SEO industry are all trying to game Google. And Google is very secretive about how it, is page rank or even if page rank exists. So they all used to anyway, I can't speak for now, get together at conferences and try and figure that out amongst themselves. And yes, of course, some people are keeping things back, but there's a lot more sharing there, I think, and maybe because of the power that this one big tech entity had in that industry. So yeah, the more cases we can share, I think the better. Cases are a great way to promote your business. We get a lot of leads from our case studies. So I think it's a bit of a false economy not to share and you don't have to tell us everything, but it's, it's yeah, good. It's I, good. I think I'd add to it. You know, I, I just finished this degree at Oxford in AI and a lot of the discussion was around what bits of your code do you keep kind of close to the vest and how much does that matter? And it's a huge discussion in the tech world because you have the kind of open AI models, which you do see really taking off and people building their own businesses off of it. And I guess it's a question of your own competence of, do you think you've built something that is unique enough that only you can do it? Or do you think you're doing something that's actually quite basic and you're not so confident that if you gave it away that you wouldn't just be sharing something that anybody else would be doing? In the latter example, I guess the question is whether that matters because if, if it's that basic, then someone else is probably already doing it. So I don't know that we need to be so scared. Yeah, exactly. Your point around developers is great, isn't it? Because you know, if you look at open source coding, your code is open for scrutiny by the crowd and WordPress, not the most complicated CMS in the world, developed by thousands of contributors. And it keeps on top of all the changes that need to happen because the crowd is helping do it. And therefore the open AI model makes sense. It's like, surely innovation can come more quickly if we collaborate. Definitely. I feel like my learning to supercharge when I went to a digital marketing SEO agency and was going to conferences in the paid space, the SEO space, because there was just so much I openly shared. And it was almost, yeah, like you said, James, their points of success was to show off what they had just done in quite some detail as well. But I think we are getting better. But I do think it is down to a confidence thing. I mean, surely once you've won an award, you know that it's a great piece of measurement work, but maybe we're not so confident as to whether it is being done better elsewhere. So we should really be more confident in that. I'd love to see that more. Awards, I think, is a good place to be. The last award show I went to, it was just very, very quick. On to the next one. It wasn't a reason of why they won or what were the metrics that were covered? How was the objective met? And I would love to do a call out to, which shouldn't just be down to measurement conferences. I think awards ceremonies should be a lot more on the why. Alison, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been fascinating to get an insight into your team. And yeah, I would love to 
hear more about some of your award wins and some of the grid case studies. So H and K, please share. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for joining me. You going to join me on the next one? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm following you around. I'll let you know. <laughs> Never know when he's going to appear. <laughs> so on the next episode, we'll be interviewing Shoni at Limpiar, for, which is another slightly different organisation of building a data team. But Alison, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to seeing you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, both. That was the PR Resolution Podcast. If you want to learn more about emerging areas of PR, join the PR Resolution and head to blog.coveragebook.com. Stay in touch by following me on Twitter at Stella Bales and make sure you subscribe to the series to get the next episode.